I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 215. Carrie got burnt this weekend. Uh, why are you talking about my business? <laughs> Y'all, I know so much better than to do this, but I didn't wear sunscreen to the baseball game that we went to on Sunday, and uh, we had to leave early. Oh, God. She was so red. But your skin handled it very well. Well, hold on, and I'll tell you the trick. But, yeah, Colby had to go down and buy me some sunscreen. He was like, it's only $3. Like, I'll get it. And I was like, $3? Okay. <laughs> okay, it was like that. It came out. It was like a like chapstick. It was so little. But oh. I was like, give it to me. Like, I yeah. lathered down. And I'm, I'm not one that, like, once I'm in it, like, reapplying gives me a texture issue. Mm-hmm. But this, I was like bathing in it yeah but yeah we left with well what should have been like two innings left we walk to the car get in the car turn the game on the radio get to like the next stoplight and those motherfuckers hit a walk-off grand slam and won the game 10 run ruled it oh my gosh Mm -hmm. wow Uh (laughs) uh-huh i was like Sorry, guys. Because <laughs> my sister went with us because she has season tickets. Mm. And her husband and um, her son and his wife, like, couldn't go. And so I was like, sorry. <laughs> but let me tell y'all the trick. Colby was like, you need to bathe in vinegar. And I was like, let me look this up. What well, said for vinegar... It said if the you have blisters, it's good to dry the blisters up. But if you don't have blisters, that the vinegar actually dries your skin out. Where it makes it worse. But it said apple cider vinegar is where that shit's at. Ooh. So I took a shower and I poured apple cider vinegar on my arms and legs where that was burned. I think I did that two or three times, and then I did kind of burn my legs. But I think it's more because I shaved that morning than yeah. the actual sunburn. And that, so I would let it sit there a minute and then rinse it off. And then I put some in the washcloth and just held it on the worst parts. And y'all, I never hurt. And I was scorched. She was so bad. It was, it was like, like my stomach hurt. I was so sunburned. Like I was like sick sunburned and it never hurt. Yeah, that's amazing. I put that on Marley's skin, that apple cider vinegar. Well, that mixed with coconut oil. Well, apparently that shit is where it's at. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people will drink it in the morning. Uh One, to help them poo. And two, to be like an appetite thing. Yeah. It also helps with uh, hemorrhoids. Really? Mm -hmm. Who knew that apple cider vinegar was like this thing we'd all been sleeping on for decades. Well, everyone online. Pinterest. No, I know. But I know. But I'm saying like... But I feel like it just all of a sudden came around in the last like 10 or 15 years. Yeah. Like it was one, like a, an old school remedy mm-hmm. that came back. Like how everybody's yeah. cleaning with vinegar and baking soda now. Yeah. You know, it's like an old school remedy that's just come back. But let me tell you, summer is coming up. And if you get sunburned, that shit worked for me. Now, if you're allergic to it, don't use it. You know, yeah. use with your discretion. Don't freaking come at us if you, you know, burn your skin off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was outside this weekend I feel like a vampire. I was finally outside. I got a little burnt, but nothing compared to you. And luckily, like, I mean, it was just a little pink on my shoulders and my face. You know, my five finger head or whatever it's called, a forehead. What? Five head? I said a forehead. Like, that's not what the actual name is. But yeah, I could feel my skin like that. And I was like, why didn't I put on sunscreen? And then I came in and I saw Carrie's text and I was like, oh, shit. Yeah, it, before I took the shower, it hurt so bad. Like, again, you know that sunburn where you, you're you physically ill because you're so sunburned? Yeah. Like, you, your stomach hurts. Like, you feel like 
Like you almost like you have the flu. That's how I felt. So wear your sunscreen and do as we say, not as we do. (laughs) Well, speaking of saying something. I was going to say, especially when it comes to learning a new language. (laughs) You sounded like you won a new car. You say that every time. Well, why do you sound like a game show host? Because maybe I am. Maybe I moonlight as one. We all know that Carrie doesn't have time to actually moonlight as something else, but she does have time to learn a new language because Babbel is back. And, you know, they teach bite-sized language lessons. She can do it on the toilet. And we all know she's on the toilet. I mean, she's not wrong. Y'all know I spent at least 15 minutes on the toilet on TikTok. Well, I can spend 15 minutes on the toilet on Babbel. Learning a freaking new lesson because those bite-sized lessons, she said, are just 15 minutes long. So it's the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. You can choose from over 14 different languages. And maybe some of y'all could speak my language then. What, smart ass? <laughs> you think I'm smart? Emphasis on the ass. <laughs> so other language apps use AI for their lessons, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Babbel uses speech recognition technology to help you improve your pronunciation and accent. I don't want to sound like I'm from South Mississippi speaking in Spanish or French or German or whatever. I want to sound like someone who is a fluent speaker of that language. Right. Also, you know, when you're reading a book and you say a word or a name a certain way, and then you, you know, it gets made into a movie and you're like, oh, that's not how I said that word at all. That's happened to me like multiple times. Oh, it's definitely happened to me. There's so many different ways to learn with Babbel too. We all know we love podcasts. They have podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. And even better, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. So start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. So right now, you can save up to 60% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash creep. That's babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash creep for up to 60% off your subscription. Oh, something else I did over the weekend, you know, back to me, Leo season. <laughs> it's not even Leo season. In I'm just your like... world, it's always Leo season. <laughs> See, I can't even say it right. (laughs) But I discovered on HBO Max, they have without a trace and cold case files or cold case. I can't remember what it is, but those are two of the series that me and my mama watched all the time. And it's on there, like all of them. So you can binge your little heart out. You know what else you can binge your little heart out on? Pizza. No. Oh, oh. Y'all should have seen her face she gave me when I stretched her. First of all, I hate being shushed, so I'm a little sorry, but it was also funny because your face. (laughs) But (laughs) that's just what I wanted to say, okay? (laughs) But the good icing. Oh my God. Okay, well, you can bend your little heart out on all the shit on Patreon if you're a Patreoner. Oh my God, someone hire her for Will of Fortune. Fuck. Well, thank you so much, Amy D from PA. Pennsylvania. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, first I thought it was going to rhyme. Oh, God. And it, not, you know what I mean? Like a, yeah. like a do, 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 do thing, and it didn't. Uh-huh. Okay. okay. Well, Carrie W. from Florida. Okay. Lily T. from Florida. Chelsea J. from Mississippi. Okay, local girl. Mel D. from Australia. But hello to Mana T. from Florida. Joanne O. from California. And Rebecca G. from Kentucky. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. You want an episode shout out and all of that bonus content we were talking about they can binge. Head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. 
Okay, so y'all know, going straight to the Facebook group, checking out the suggestion box. And this suggestion comes from Melly M. Okay, so there's this website that does a really good job. I've talked about it before, but they do a really good job of just like kind of summarizing stuff, especially if it's on a show. So I used it a lot, but... Is it Kelsey's True Crime or something? No, that's I think that's one I've used before. But okay. no, this one makes me giggle only because my coworkers, Kim and Natalie have a song for it when they see me using it. Oh, gosh. It's called It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere. <laughs> and they always go, It's Crime O'Clock Somewhere. Like, in the, it's Five O'Clock say, Somewhere. Um, but they didn't make that up. No, no, no. But it's just the way that they sing it. Like, it's it's so sing-songy. Like, it's like yeah. almost like operatic that it's fucking terrible. <laughs> and it's hilarious how bad they do it. That's funny. And then neither one of them are singers, so they, like, intentionally try to harmonize with each other. Yeah. And so every time I I use this website, I sing that in my head, and it makes me giggle. Off subject, but on the subject of singing, have you watched the finale of Orange County Real Housewives? No. They have a song. I'm ready for this. Don't you sing it. Don't you tell me. I want to be surprised. No, I'm not. But I just want to say that whoever auto-tuned them... Please auto-tune me. <laughs> <laughs> so this story that I'm going to do tonight, it's actually kind of a larger story. It's been on an ID show called Blood, Lies, and Alibis. It's been on a couple of different podcasts, YouTube, all the things, all the places. Okay, I had to say in my head what you said. Blood, Blood lies, and al- alibis. No, and. Blood, uh, oh yes, it is. Blood, okay. lies, and alibis. Yes, because you said blood, lies, and alibis. Like, blood, lies, alibis. Like, I was like, blood lines? But blood, comma, lies, comma, and and alibis. alibis. Okay. I have to say it with like a strong southern accent to make it (laughs) go. You say it. Blood, lies, and alibis. Yeah. Say it. But blood, lies, and alibis. Alibis. Alibaster. (laughs) Blood, lies, and alibis. Hey, well, you just say it well. Well, you, how you said it, I was just like, you might be a game show host, but you're not the host of that show. What, blood, lies, and alibis? (laughs) (laughs) okay onward okay so so this is the story of aaron chorney so aaron was the daughter of darcy and debbie chorney she was born on september 30th 1983 in brandon manitoba i thought that's where making a murderer was no that was um i thought it was manitoba county and maybe it was I know, this, I, know. I know this is Canada. Okay. So Erin was a typical teen. She had all the friends. She was very well liked, amazing personality, everything. You say typical. I'm getting to the typical part. Okay. Well, Erin's parents had separated and she was splitting her time between her mom and her dad. And around that time is when she started having a little tough of a time. She became more of a partier, more like, I want to hang out with my friends and my parents. There were some arguments and stuff that were had, but it really just seemed like typical teenage bullshit. Because, look, we know I fucking argued with my parents when I was a teenager. (laughs) Donna, how many times did I call you on the phone? (laughs) That girl got balls of steel, (laughs) y'all. Balls of steel. (laughs) My dad would be in the kitchen cooking and I'd be in the living room right next to him like literally a stone's throw a cabinet blocking us and i would just be bitching about him i mean not loud no not loudly at all and let's be honest he had the uh what's that called the fan on he could yeah the exhaust fan yeah 
but not loud at all, but enough that if he turned around quickly, he would hear her. She'd be like, I can't. I'm like, where is he? Where's your daddy right now? Behind me. (laughs) That's exactly what she would say. (laughs) (laughs) But teens are dickheads. You know, I mean, they are you. They want to be with their friends more. They're trying to figure out who they are. They think they know everything and they suck. So, Aaron also kind of liked to party. I don't, nothing really said she did drugs, but there was some mention of parties where drugs would come out, that kind of thing. So, I think maybe she dabbled a little, but, you know, we know that she drank and she just did, just again, teenage bullshit. So, on April 21st of 2002, Aaron had gone over to her mom's apartment to hang out with her mom and her sister, Leslie. They're going to have dinner. And because remember, she she was splitting her time. So she was going to have dinner with her mom and sister, hang out for a while. She was supposed to come back and spend the night there. But it wasn't unusual if she like stayed out and partied and was like, you know, decided to either stay out or go to her dad's because she was 18. So while she's at her mom's house, again, they're having dinner. Everything's going great. She gets a call from a friend who wants to go meet for some coffee around 7 p.m. that night. And she's like, cool, cool, cool. And her mom's like, she didn't get like dressed up so I didn't think she was like going out to a party she just kind of went out like she was like she was just going to meet a friend her sister Leslie walked her to the door hugged her by told her she loved her and that was the last time that her family saw her so Erin was supposed to come home that night to her mom's house after she went out and met her friend but she never showed she didn't call to tell her mom that she wasn't coming home that night and while that was a little unusual that she didn't just at least call to say, hey, I'm just not coming home. It was still not anything that made her mom alarmed. But see, when I was a kid, even when I was 18 and stuff, my mom would like keep the carport light on and have the door unlocked for me. So if I wasn't coming home, she wanted to know so she could go lock everything up. We always went to your house, so you didn't have that problem. (laughs) Right. And you were not staying away from your mama, so you didn't have that problem. No, I was looking at you because I was just thinking, God... Like, what a different time. Your mom left the door unlocked for you to come home, you mm-hmm. know? But, so, Colby and Carrie came over this weekend and put my ring doorbell, or whatever, I have the nest or something, up because, you know, I've had it for three years and it's just had, like, wires poking out where it should have been installed way before. Well, uh, the other night, I got home late, like, from recording here, and... <laughs> I kind of freaked myself out because I got in, was doing, like, I think I used the bathroom, talked to Marley, you know, whatever. And then I sat down and an alarm, like, it alerted me that someone was there and it said a person. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, it's actually caught something, you know, on the thing. No, that was just me. Um, like 15 minutes ago when I got home. And it was just now alerting you? No, it was alerting me of a sound, but because oh, it had, it, yeah. because it had told me that a person was there 15 minutes ago, that's what had showed up as my like thing. Yeah. But no, it was a sound and it was just fucking like crickets or whatever. Like that was orbs flying by, you know, but, uh, but I was like, Oh my God, what am I going to see? What am I? Oh, it's just me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I got so scared. I was like, am I going to tell anyone this? And then I tell it on the podcast. But, you know. Y'all, my driveway camera did Colby and me so dirty. Oh, gosh. It pulls up 
Okay, all of a sudden, after I don't know how long we've had it, it's decided to start like recognizing us. And so it has this little bubble of our faces, like, I guess so it can remember who we are. <laughs> well, Damn fancy. Colby looks surprised and he's half naked. Like he didn't have a shirt on. Like he must have just like ran out to take the trash out real quick or something. <laughs> and that's the shot it gets of him. I, however, look like I swallowed Fat Bastard. I look so, <laughs> no, you laugh, hold. Hold, please. Also, Colby goes without a shirt a lot. Not outside, though. Oh. <laughs> okay, that's Colby's. That's me. <laughs> it's that's so the bad. one that they put on there every time? Yes. <laughs> that's so wrong. It's so bad. It's so bad you know when people are like i want people to take candid shots of me not that not, not that. i don't want candid shots like that no not that <laughs> not that and i don't know how to get it off i don't know how to get those bubbles off of there i don't know why all of a sudden it's like oh hey here's a person well you know what can i see the picture you're gonna take of donna because she comes a lot too <laughs> oh god <laughs> i can only imagine okay well back to Aaron. So, like I said, her mom wasn't that alarmed, but the next day she still hadn't heard from her, and so she called some of her friends to see, like, hey, is she with you? And none of them had seen her either, but again, they weren't super concerned because it had happened before where Erin just kind of disappeared for a couple of days with a friend, but she would call every so often just to be like, hey, kind of check in. So it's like part of them is like, this isn't that big of a deal. She's done this before, but it's also like, well, she usually calls after a day or so. Right. Can we normalize checking in with people? Oh my God, I know. Like, I, just everyone who goes missing, they're like, well, this isn't uncommon. And it's like, I get when you don't want to be social and stuff, but you still can check in. Like, you can still send a message. Like, it's it's not unheard of that the group chat with me, Donna and Tiffany, if it's like a weekend where we're all vegging out and we don't want to talk, it, it may be six o'clock that night before we check in, but we're like, everybody cool? Yeah. Cool. Okay, bye. Yes. I mean, at least be like, y'all good? Right. Or if we were going off or someone was coming over, we would let you know, like, hey, so-and-so's coming over or, mm-hmm. hey, I'm going to go so like to see so-and-so or whatever. We at least tell you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I... Just check in because this is what happens that those crucial hours are lost because you're just like, because of who we are, because everyone's like this, I don't want to make a big deal about it because it's probably not a big deal. And that's exactly how her parents felt because they're like, well, she's done it before. She's 18, yada, yada, yada. You know, she's had some trouble in the past. Like she had to go to a treatment facility for depression when she was like 14 years old. Again, she was starting to party and all of that. So, you know, they're just like, she's just trying to, she's still, I feel like kind of angry about the separation so they're not that concerned. You can sow your wild oats or whatever the fucking saying is. I, I don't know. But still just check in. Just just so people know. So again, they called the friends and the friends were like, no, you know, we haven't seen her. And so it wasn't until a week later that Aaron's parents were like, okay, we, we have to report it. Like, we're not going to be bothering them. You know, this is, we, we have to report. And they filed a missing persons report. Police started the investigation right away. They start interviewing all of Aaron's friends, family, 
And they all kind of point to this on and off again boyfriend of hers named Michael Bridges. So police bring Michael in for questioning. And he's like, yeah, actually, I was with Aaron the night of April 21st. He says that he's actually the one that picked her up from her mom's apartment. But he said that he and Aaron hung out and she left his house at about 11.30 p.m. to go to another friend's house. And he never saw her after that. And then that's where basically the trail goes cold. The police interview Michael because that's who people pointed them to. But from there, there's literally nothing else. There's nobody. There's no crime scene. There's nobody that even knows where she went missing from to even start with. So her family does a press conference in hopes of that generating some tips or if Aaron's out there and is afraid to call or whatever, they can just be like, look, we love you. We just want to make sure you're okay. Just please reach out, you know? So after the press conference, that does generate tips for police, but those tips are literally from everywhere. Some of the tips are even people who say that they spotted her in the States and this all happened in Canada. So police do their due diligence and they follow up on every single one of these tips. They all lead nowhere and they all just continue to drain police resources. So at this point, police are like, well, like, what do we do? We, we literally have nothing. We've traced down leads from all over Canada, all the way into the States. We've interviewed friends, family, ex-boyfriend, like there's nothing. So they're like, look, let's go back to square one. Who was the last person to see her alive? And Michael. Exactly. Michael. So they are interviewing family friends again, and they start hearing some not so good things about Michael. Apparently, Michael was very controlling and abusive to Aaron. Aaron's family was like, we don't like him. You don't need to be with him. It, her friends, too. They, they just, they were like, He's bad news. You need to break up with him. One of her friends said that one time in the freezing cold Canadian winter that he kicked her out of his house and she was barely wearing any clothes at all. And so she had to walk and find a phone, like a pay phone, so that she could call for help for like somebody to come get her because she was freezing with no clothes on. Wow. Another one of her friends said that in March of 2002 that Michael and Aaron and one of their friends had gone out partying. They went back to Michael's and when they got there, he and Aaron started fighting. It seems like this is kind of commonplace. They had lots of arguments that sometimes turned physical. Well, this time Michael grabbed Aaron by the throat. The friend tried to intervene to help Aaron out And when she stood up to Michael, Michael grabbed her and threw her across the room. What? And then after he threw the friend across the room, he went back to physically assaulting Aaron. The only thing that stopped this was Michael's mom came in the room and broke up the fight. What? And then it's just like, he took Aaron and the friend home and that was it. Oh my gosh. So Aaron's parents were like, we had no idea all that was happening. They didn't like him, but they had no idea the extent to which he was abusing Aaron. Yeah. They knew that he was kind of controlling, you know, he wanted to control who she talked to, who she saw, all the things. But again, the family had no idea. Apparently, Aaron had broken up with Michael not long before she went missing. And when police interviewed one of Michael's friends... He tells him a story that kind of starts putting the pieces together of 
how did Erin end up back at Michael's house on the night that she went missing if they had just broken up? So in true abuser and manipulator fashion, Michael used this friend's cell phone, or phone actually, I don't even think it was a cell phone, it was 2002, used a friend's phone to call Erin. So of course she answered the phone because it's the friend's number calling, not Michael. So she answered the phone and they got into a big argument and they hung up. So Michael and the friend hang out a little longer and he's like, okay, give me your phone again. I'm gonna try again. Or call, you know, call her again. Calls again. They argued. They hung up. Well, then Michael calls a third time. And after Michael and Aaron talk for a little while, he tells the friend, okay, we're going to go pick her up now. Something in their conversation, she had agreed to meet with him. The friend says that they went back over to Michael's house to get, I think it was Michael's mom's car, a car from their house. And then they go together in that car to pick up Aaron from Aaron's mom's apartment. Once they pick Aaron up, Michael's like, cool, cool. Well, we're going to go hang out and drops the friend off at his his own house and then Michael and Aaron leave from there and that's the last time that the friend ever saw Aaron so the police are like all right we're finally on the right track we're getting some more information and they brought Michael back in for some more questioning they knew that Michael was just acting weird all of his answers were so clearly rehearsed he wasn't just like talking off the cuff like you could tell that he had rehearsed those answers he didn't show any emotions when the police were asking him questions about his missing girlfriend slash ex-girlfriend he had no fucking emotion and so the friend that had given him all that information he took a polygraph and it showed that yeah he was telling the truth about the timeline, you know, just everything that he told him about the events leading up to the last time anyone saw Aaron alive. Well, Michael was like, no, I'm good. I'm not going to take that polygraph. No, I'm good. Which is his right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's just one piece in the Michael starting to look real sketch puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely look sus when you don't do the polygraph. But again, it is within your right, but it's a piece of the puzzle of, okay, his interview seems rehearsed he's Mm -hmm. not taking a polygraph he was last one to see her alive he was an abusive boyfriend like you know it's stacking up against you there mikey mike right but still like before police have some new information but they literally had nothing on michael they didn't even know where aaron was for that matter or any proof at all that anything had actually even happened to aaron So they had to let him go. So police put Michael under surveillance. They tap his phones. They follow him everywhere he goes. They do these covert missions to um, search his car. They get a search warrant and like in the dead of night, search his car so that he doesn't know that they searched it. And they've got their little lights and they're looking and there's no blood. There's no hairs. There's no nothing. So eventually they get a search warrant for his house to do the same thing. And they essentially find nothing. Only thing that they found was a kind of bizarre note. The note outlined all of his answers to the questions that detectives asked. So they were like, okay, so did he really rehearse the answers? And he you know, wrote down questions that he thought they were going to ask. Or did he write down his answers after his interrogation so that he could remember what he said? Who knows? But they know that they have the letter with all the information. So about a year after Aaron went missing, a kind of bizarre thing happens. And not kind of a bizarre thing. But is it Bob's bizarre, bizarre type of bizarre? Not quite that bizarre. (laughs) 
So in spring of 2003, little Donna and little Carrie getting ready to graduate high school while a letter was being delivered to the Chorney house. So in this letter, whoever wrote it claimed that they knew what happened to Aaron. But it's weird because they also said they're sorry for what they did, but then they also say they know who killed Aaron. So the family is completely distraught by this because Although she's been missing for a year, they're still holding out hope that she's alive because there's no proof that she's not, just as much as there's no proof that she is. So this letter kind of took its toll on the family because it was really the first tangible thing to say Aaron's not alive. The police take this letter and they do all the forensic files on it. They dust for prints. They check for DNA in the little liquor flap thing. They do... Can you never say that again? I think that's what it's called. Is it? I think. The liquor flap? No, but it's like the lick strip or something. (laughs) The liquor flap. I know what that's really called. I don't know. I don't work at Office Max. Office Depot. (laughs) That's what Colby calls your... I knew that's where you're going. Uh So nothing's found on this letter, the envelope, nothing to tell police who wrote it, where it came from, anything. Well, then in wannabe BTK fashion... Another letter was found in a public bathroom. What the fuck? But I never saw who or how this letter was found. Like, on the Bloodlines and Alibis, there was like a reenactment where this girl is just like, hmm, what's this? On the on the <laughs> counter in a bathroom. And I'm like, first of all, why did it not get wet? How, so, how did it not get wet? Yeah. Second of all, who the fuck found it? Third of all, who puts a letter in that public... Pa- c- so many people could have just picked that up and throw that's probably like their seventh try but it keeps getting thrown away and nobody finds it because people think it's just some bullshit shit and throw it away that's dumb okay so this letter same as before they say they're sorry that they had basically told a friend what they had done and their friend told them that they need to go to police but then it was like they were taunting police to say they were close to finding where Aaron was buried. And so again, it was just another letter that confirmed that Aaron was dead and that her body was buried. And that's why they were having a hard time finding it. And then that was the last of the letters. They stopped. Police put ads in the paper trying to get the author to continue to come forward because maybe they would slip up just like the Unabomber. You know, maybe something would happen so that they could get some sort of information. Maybe they would slip up, give a detail they didn't mean to give anything, but nothing. So at this point, people know that police have looked at and interviewed Michael. He was the last person to see her alive. And he's a douche anyway. So he's really starting to lose a lot of friends. He kind of goes underground in a way. I mean, he's not like off the grid, but he's not hanging out with people, not even really leaving his house anymore because he is under some scrutiny. But police are like, no, we know that Michael did this. We have to prove this. We know that he did this. So the local police contact the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and they're like, we need help. We know this guy did it. We need help to prove it. So the RCMP sets up a sting operation known as Mr. Big. Oh my gosh, again? Uh Uh-huh. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, we do a whole episode, well, not a whole episode, but an episode on another case that uses a Mr. Big sting that the RCMP is kind of known for. It's actually illegal in most countries. 
um, including the states. Yeah, for good reason. Too. Yeah, it, you know, in the states, they're like it violates their constitutional rights, and you know, you get a lot of false confessions, yada yada yada. But until recently, it was legal in Canada. I think it's illegal now. And the last case that we did that involved this was a big case in the litigation against the Mr. Big or the big boss stings that the RCMP does. So we're going to go into the sting operation against Michael. So on September 23rd of 2003, this is a year plus since Aaron went missing. It's the first stage of the sting operation. A female detective who is working undercover gives Michael randomly, you know, she's handing out flyers, gives Michael a flyer that is a survey for a radio station. And the winner of this fake radio survey will win tickets to an NHL game in Calgary. Now, Michael's a huge fucking fan and stoked about this because it is like (laughs) an all-expenses-paid trip to Calgary. So, Michael's fucking lucky day, about a month after this, he gets a call saying, oh my God, guess what? You won. So, he wins, air quotes around wins, this all-expensive-paid trip, the flight, the hotel, the all the things, gets to go to this hockey game. And while he's there, he meets a, another contestant, air quotes, winner, who, of course, is an undercover police officer. Some stuff made it sound like they met, like, the whole thing. Like, they got, like, they went to the hockey game and stuff together, too, but... Either way, after the game, they hung out, they drank, they went to a strip club as part of their winning. Um, Some stuff made it sound like, (laughs) what? As part of their winning, they went to a strip club. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, they gave them like, okay, here's some money, you can go to the strip club. I know, I know, that's so silly though. So, some stuff made it sound like they met at the strip club, but he was a winner too. But I, I really think that they would have gotten to go to the game and all together. But luckily for the operation... Michael and who we're going to call Brock, which is the undercover agent, hit it off. They become fast friends. Brock is very unsuspecting. Like, he's just a little kind of maybe middle-aged, not flashy-looking, just an average-looking Joe, right? So, Michael and Brock, BFFs now, and they make plans to hang out when they get back. And they do. And, of course... While they're hanging out, the cops are following them, have them under surveillance, doing the thing. They start hanging out all, you know, pretty regularly. They're having coffee, they're having lunch, they're doing all this stuff. And of course, for the Mr. Big sting to be a thing, the person they're doing it to has to believe that they are getting involved in some sort of criminal organization. Mm -hmm. So in this case, Brock some sort of gangster type thing and they're moving money he's got you know because he's flashy with his money to michael but not so flashy that it's like okay you know right so brock starts slowly bringing michael into this fake organization so that he starts you know doing drops and getting money and you know all the things to make him really believe that he's working his way up in this criminal organization so one of the kind of big steps of this sting operation to start michael to feel more comfortable and open up to brock was that they set up a scene where allegedly this woman had stolen some money from her boyfriend who was part of the organization 
and she stole it and was on the run. And so somebody comes up, hands Brock this, I mean, envelope full of cash and is like, go take care of this. So Brock takes Michael with him to this hotel and they say that this is like a scene meant for Hollywood because they go all out to stage this scene like Michael is beating up this who is, of course, a female undercover cop that faking that she's the one that stole the money. Beating up. Yeah. So the undercover female cop is pretending to be the girl who stole all the money from the, her boyfriend and the organization. So Brock got the envelope full of cash to go find her and beat her up. Okay. So they pulled out all the stops to be very theatrical in this fight scenario, like fake blood, all the things. And But Michael's not the one beating her up. It's Brock. Right. Brock, the police officer. Okay. Well, you said Michael. Did I? Yes. Well, I just wanted to really confuse y'all. Okay. No, Michael is just along for the ride. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to make Michael think that Brock is cool with mm-hmm. violence against a woman right. so that he then is more willing to open up about what happened with Aaron. Yeah. So Brock comes back, bloody knuckles, all the things from fighting this fake woman who stole all this money, who really is a police officer. I mean, they meet at a hotel room. I mean, like like I said, dip, pulled out all the stops for this. And Michael totally bought it. So he thinks that... He's in this now. He's seen the stuff that Brock does. Like, he thinks he is in this organization now. So, for the Mr. Big Stings to really be what they are, though, they have to make the person believe that there is a boss, a Mr. Big, that will let you join the organization. But they have to know what you've done in the past so that they can cover up your crimes It's kind of how they presented it to Michael. And also, especially in the last case, to give you some skin in the game. You know, they got to have something on you so that you don't report on them. Much like Scientology. Tell us your your deepest, darkest secrets so we can hold on to them so that you never leave us because we'll tell all your secrets. Right. So Brock starts to get Michael to talk. Because he's like, look, the boss is going to come and he wants to meet you. But like, you're going to have to tell him shit you've done in the past because they want to be able to help you cover this up so that you're not going to jail for some frivolous previous crime so they can keep you working kind of thing too so michael tells brock all about this one incident he never names aaron by name but he says it was an accident that aaron attacked him he pushed her and she fell back and hit her head and Brock's like okay that's cool so when you know when the boss gets here next week and y'all meet you know like you tell him what you told me kind of thing so as time goes by it gets you know the the boss is coming in and Brock's like hey okay we actually let's go over this one more time like let's let's me and you practice this so that you you're cool in front of you know I don't want you to lose your cool in front of this boss like I don't want you to look nervous like let's practice this again let's role play you tell me what happened again well this time Michael changes his story he tells Brock that actually he had gotten in an argument with Aaron again I don't think he ever still named her by name but that they had gotten in an argument and he started choking her, which we know he's done before. But this time she passed out and he panicked because he was like, oh my God, like I got to go through with it now. You don't. Right. 
yeah, you don't. First of all, don't choke her to begin with. But then let's just let's just stop right there. Let's call for some help. You don't have exactly. to kill her. Well, what he did was he took her to the bathtub and held her head underwater to make sure that she died. Oh my gosh. The only part that I can find like comfort in in that was at least she was already passed out. Yeah. So she wasn't suffering underwater. Yeah. But from there, he wrapped her in a white flat sheet and wrapped an electric cord around it, took her to a grave site in Brandon that had just been dug and buried her in that grave site. He even told Brock what kind of shovel he used. He said that he had used um, saran wrap around her head and hair. He went into way, way more detail. Because they told him, like, we're going to hide the body. Like, we'll get rid of it for you. We'll give you an alibi for that night. Like, all this stuff so that they could protect him. So, it's like, give us all the details so we know what we got to cover up. Yeah. Also, can we go back to his logic? That's basically my logic when I'm eating something I know I should stop. and um, But I'm like, well, I'm halfway through the bag. Let me continue eating it all. I don't, you know what? It's almost gone. I don't want to dirty up a dish to right. put it in the refrigerator for a leftover. Let me just finish this. Yeah. Like, seriously, that's what I say. Except for this is someone's life. How do you just say that? Right? Like, how do you just say that? And also, I feel terrible after I eat all of that because I am so stuffed. How do you live with yourself when you're just like, yeah, I probably didn't have to do that. Could have just got help. Because he doesn't see it like that because he's... The psychopath. Yeah, he's an abusive piece of shit. So Michael even took Brock to the cemetery where he had buried her. But I don't think he took him to the exact grave. He just said, like, it's around here. And then said, I can't remember the name, but like a name that was on it. So police in, again, a covert mission because they don't want Michael to know yet. So they go to that area and they find a grave site that has a very similar name because it was a not a very common last name so it was a you know they find a, a grave site with a similar name and on that grave they had died around the time that Aaron went missing so they would have had a freshly dug grave so they start sending some probes down to see what they can find this point because the judge had said like yeah you can go look at this but like you'd better not disturb the grave of whoever's buried there like we're not doing that so they you know they send their probe down and they're trying to find and they had gone down five times and they're like fuck we're not finding anything but the sixth time they went down they found a sheet oh my gosh and two years after Aaron went missing they had found her body. Wow. So on February 12th of 2004, when Michael thinks that he's about to meet the boss to go up in this organization, it was actually police. In June of 2005, Michael went to trial. The thing that, that police had such a hard time with this case too was that they were like, the way that he told the story to Brock, he was sitting there, basically, like they were like in a diner. And of course, this is all being recorded. And he's just telling him the story of how he brutally murdered his girlfriend. And one of the biggest cases in the area, in the country maybe even, at that point in time. And he's a stone cold killer. And is telling this story with zero emotion. Wow. And the undercover cop has to just be like, cool man, I get it. 
Yeah. Which is be crazy. You know, he has to, he has to go along with it when you know, he's like, I want to kill you, you know? Right. But you know, he's a better human than Michael. So he didn't. Well, Michael was found guilty of first degree murder and was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. No one to this day, nobody knows who wrote those letters. Oh my gosh, seriously? Yes, nobody knows where they came from. Did they come from Michael? Did they come from Michael's friend? We don't know. I I was thinking Michael's friend. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Like, I'm sorry for what I did, like letting him have the phone. Yeah. Going with him to pick her up, like trying to be the mediator kind of thing. And like he told him to confess, but he was writing it as if it was Michael saying, my friend told me to confess. But in December of 2011, Michael filed for early parole under this faint hope clause. And basically it's this clause that will give an inmate faint hope. Yeah. That's sentenced to like life in prison, a chance to ask for parole after 15 years And Michael had already been in prison like 17 years when he filed for this. But Aaron's family testified in this hearing and he was like, I'm a changed person. So the jury did find that he could apply for early parole in June of 2026. And so it would give him. Wow. Doesn't mean he's going to get it. It just means he's eligible to apply for it. Denied. I hope so. He didn't come through and turn himself in. He didn't do anything out of remorse or anything like that. He thought he was doing something else criminal. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's the thing, too, is like the, the Mr. Big whole thing is very problematic. And it does lead to a lot of false confessions, especially in that, you know, like that case we talked about. It's episode 159. It's called The Heart of the Issue, but H-A-R-T. But, you know, in cases where you take someone who has no money, who has no positive anything going on in their life, and then you put them at a chance to become part of an organization, making money, being able to bring themselves out of poverty, and then you tell them that, oh, by the by, you're about to meet someone who is the head of this sometimes international crime ring. You better not fucking lie to him. This is what he's expecting you to say. And you better fucking say it, you know, so you Mm -hmm. do get false confessions from that, you know, from that route. But like, that didn't happen with Michael. Right. Like, there wasn't a, hey, here's all this money and you, you know, it it wasn't, this didn't feel the same like that case. Yeah. And when, air quotes, Brock asked Michael, like, bro, why you, why you change your, why'd you change your story? Like, that's not what you told me last time. Like, what happened? Basically, he said he was trying to downplay how bad it was because Mm -hmm. he was like, I'm basically telling you this gruesome murder. Like I didn't want you to like freak out kind of thing. Yeah. And so you didn't. So then I was like, okay, well let me actually tell you what happened. Yeah. So yeah, his story changed, but it got more to the truth. Right. I don't know. I, I think it's weird. I don't know how this actually, they can get people to believe this. Of like, tell us your deepest, darkest secrets. Same. I'm like, if you're that powerful, you have means of finding that shit out. At least in all the movies that I watch, they do. Well, and that is kind of what they said to him, too. Like, you tell us because we're going to know if you're lying kind of thing. We're going to be able to figure this out. It's just silly, too, because it's like, okay, half the time, a little peon never meets the Mr. Big. Right. So, definitely not you coming in 
four months in going to meet the head honcho and have this thing with him. Like, no, if you're doing that, they're going to kill you. Okay. Like no one meets him unless they're in like the like core four. Unless you're a made man. I mean, I watched whatever that movie is. I can't think of right now. (laughs) It's just so silly. But I mean, when you're, when you're like a social pariah, like he was, I mean, his own doing, but, you know, this guy's being nice to you and then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do this. And then you just do whatever to have your friend. I, I don't know, but I, I just feel like I would question more things about it. <laughs> also, I would have questioned uh, the whole strip club thing from the radio show. The thing is, is that life isn't the fucking Goodfellows. Like, that's the movie I couldn't think of. Like, life isn't that. Like, you're not. <laughs> you said it so proper. What? Goodfellas. I didn't say that. Yes, Goodfellas. You, you said Goodfellas. Well, I meant Goodfellas. Anyway, it's not. <laughs> it's not that fucking movie. Like somebody's not gonna like bring you into the inner circle and again get you to be a made man because they fucking die too, you know. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, those organizations have been around like with family members and all that. Like they're not gonna bring in some Joe Schmo that he you have literally no connections to other than y'all both want a contest together. Right, exactly. And there's nothing that you're bringing to them like money-wise. You're not paying for anything. Because even like undercover cops and stuff will be like, I'm going to buy drugs off of this person. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so they use their contacts. But they're buying stuff. Right. You're not doing anything. Well, and that's what I was going to say. And I mean, there may be some stuff that, that we don't know that we just don't have all the details. But like, he had to have done something like he had to have maybe done some drops of drugs or whatever right. like he had to have done something but he's not bringing in money right is and what it's I mean. yeah and it's like so you think that you in a couple like you said a couple of months have worked your way up in the ranks that much like bro did you kill anybody have you beaten anybody up yet you're not a made man yes that she learned in goodfellas <laughs> i hate you right now <laughs> It's my favorite movie. Motion picture. That I can see better because I got my Felix Grey on that's blocking the blue light. That's right. No headaches for you. Thank you so much for sponsoring us again, Felix Grey. We love y'all and your product because it's freaking amazing. Seriously, you make glasses big enough for my head, small enough for Carrie's head, small enough for teenagers. And little kids. Yeah. It's like mama bear, baby bear, papa bear, all the things. Oh, and Goldilocks, whatever. I was going to say, uh, Goldilocks. <laughs> you know, that thing. But seriously, if you have a prescription, if you don't, if you have readers, Felix Gray offers all of that. But their main thing is those blue light blockers. That has saved our eyes many times. Yes, they filter out 15 times more blue light, and that means no headaches and less issues with sleep. You know that's very important. Well, because if you're like me, when you get in bed, that's your time to crush the candy, play your apps, do all the things. And look, I go to sleep with the TV on, and that's my wind down. I don't want to not do that because the blue light messes up my cycle of sleep. I'm not about that life. I'm not going to stop doing that. But you put on your Felix Grey and it blocks out the blue light and it doesn't fuck up your sleep cycles. Yes, and you look cute while doing it. Let me tell you. Look, y'all. Other day, I had on my glasses and Colby was like, you look so sexy right now. Oh, Lord. But you do. Thanks. So if you want all of that good good, head on over to felixgrayglasses.com slash 
creep. You're going to get free shipping, free returns, free exchanges. And seriously, they are the best blue light glasses on the market. Again, that is felixgrayglasses.com slash creep. F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash creep. C-R-E-E-P. Y'all go get them. They cute as shit. (laughs) Okay, so this week I'm taking us on a cruise to Alaska and we're staying at the Alaskan Hotel, which is the oldest operating hotel in Alaska. I want to go so bad. Me too. I really do want to do an Alaskan cruise. All right, a little bit of history first. As per usual, after the gold rush in California happened, miners were basically exploring all of the West to see if they could strike gold somewhere else too. Well, Joe Juno and Richard Harris, they found gold nuggets in Alaska that were, quote, as large as peas and beans. That's not very big. Like, I mean, it's big as far as gold, but like... To be like shouting it from the rooftop, like, oh my God, I found gold as big as. But they're saying, no, 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 we found these nuggets. So where the there's these nuggets, there's a lot more. Like where there's smoke, there's fire. Yeah. Where there's nuggets, there's chickens. Yeah. And there were just like these two people that were going like, I don't know, spelunking. I don't know the fucking term. But like, hey, <clears throat> let's do a whole excavation. And I think I said that wrong too. Look, I don't do outdoors shit, okay? I mean, technically that's outdoors, but indoors kind of because it's like in a mine, but it's outside. There's no air conditioner. It's outside. <laughs> so they sent word back to the man who was funding their excursion. And they were like, yeah, we found gold. So get over here ASAP. So October 18th, 1880, Tiff's birthday month. Actually, two days after her birthday, the men marked off about 160 acres that they believed to be where all the action was, and soon others flocked there, and it became a village instead of just a mining camp. And this was actually the first European-American settlement in the territory because the U.S. had just purchased Alaska a few years earlier. Anyway, since it was more a village now, there were over 100 people, and they needed a name for their settlement. There were multiple choices, but at the December 14th, 1881 miners meeting, 47 of the 72 people decided to call the place Juno after Joe Juno. Now, it is said that he bought a lot of them drinks in order to bribe them to vote that way, but it's never said as fact. Can I just say how weird it is that, like, we used to just buy land? Like, not like, hey, I want this piece of property so I can build my house on. No, like, I'm going to buy things where people already live. Yeah. I'm going to buy this whole territory, a.k.a. Alaska, that, like, people live there. Right. And then I love to learn how people, like, name stuff. Because it's like, Juno, Alaska knew the name, never knew, like, why. Yeah. And it's just a man's name. Okay, so fast forward, and it's basically a lot of fucking tents because the miners are all living there. And there's a few hotels, but not a lot. And the McCloskey brothers and this guy named Jules B. Caro, they had struck it rich in the Klondike Gold Rush. And so they decided to put their money together and build a hotel. They found a great location near the business district and the ship docks because you can only fly or boat into Juneau. Uh, I know. I watched the proposal. <laughs> That's so scary sometimes, though. Like, I mean, there's not always a plane around. 
And I don't know how to work a boat. And also, dark water terrifies me. Well, you would know how to if you live there. Like, if such, like if you grew I up mean, there. I mean, if I went to on a cruise and then for some reason I got left behind. These are fears, Carrie. Well, I mean, what do you think? You're going to go to a cruise to fucking Jamaica and you're going to drive a car back here? It's the same thing. You can slow me all you want to, but I'm right. So now that we know the travel itinerary, they really were in a good location for people arriving. But they really built the hotel for miners you know, because that's what they were all about. The hotel has three stories and 46 guest rooms. So it's not big by today's standards, but it was huge back then. And it had steam heat and all of that. So it was like live in these tents or pay and actually be warm. Uh, Yeah, we're going to do that. The grand opening took place on Tuesday, September 16th, 1913 and apparently the trio of men they were over the top because to show that they were open for business and would never like not be accommodating to guests they tied the hotel keys to a balloon and released it into the air so they were like it's open now and it'll never be closed yeah that's weird very first of all bad for the environment i was about to say first of all we know it's like littering and it's bad for the animals that, mm-hmm. like, eat it. And um, so a bad guy comes and you can never lock the place up? <laughs> Girl, right. Also, I just pictured, a like, an animal eating it and turning it into, like, Mario from, uh, I think it was Mario 3. No, it was Super Mario where he eats the pea or whatever and he, like, expands and, like, Oh, yeah. He floats. Okay, sorry. Well, the hotel housed both, you know, socialites, tired miners, you know, whoever, whenever, wherever. It saw many turning points in its history, too. There was prohibition, but the hotel was able to remain open and in the green by serving soda and ice cream sundaes in their bar instead of alcohol. But we all know that they, you know, probably served it down in the basement or something, you know. (laughs) Exactly. But... They were able to keep it on the up and up because of what they did. You know, like, look at what we're serving. And of course, they jumped right back on the alcohol train once the ban was lifted. Why was that ever even a thing? I don't know. They couldn't tax it properly or something. And so they finally figured it out and they were like, oh, okay. During the 1950s, there was this woman known as Mary and she was a madam who rented out several rooms for her girls. People kind of turned a blind eye as to what was going on, and the rooms were staying full, you know? Well, this is where Alice and her hubby entered the picture. They arrived in Juneau with money signs in their eyes because they had heard of the Alaskan gold rush, and they were there to find their fortune, big or small. They rented a room at the hotel, but Alice was to stay there while her hubby went out to see what he could find. I think he was probably like, you know, I'll give me a month, maybe less, and I'll be back. You know, we'll have somewhere to go, and then we'll be on the road to riching all the things from here. And I feel like they paid for a certain amount of time, and when she didn't hear back from him, the bill was due, Alice had to do what she had to do. She used the money he left for her, but then, you know, she might have turned to Madame Mary, or maybe she worked for herself, but she did turn to sex work to make ends meet and keep herself housed in the hotel. Well, because she didn't think her husband was coming back, because it had been like 
three months at this point. And she didn't know if he was coming back. She didn't know when because he was supposed to be back like two months ago. She never planned when he did come back. Well, he did. And when he did, she was kind of in the middle of a transaction. Oops. And so her husband was very upset, did not ask any questions, just shot the man. And I've heard that he shot her. I've heard he strangled her. So I don't know. But then he did take his own life. And that happened in her hotel room, room 219. And then the hotel later went under new management for a bit. And that bar that was upstairs, it was moved to the basement. And it kind of turned from being where the who's who went to more of a seedy crowd. Like, sure, there were still politicians that would go, but they were rubbing elbows, making deals under the table kind of thing, you know, with people that they didn't want to be associated with in public. The sex work was way more out in the open at the bar downstairs. Like, the bar was known by the locals as the snake pit. Jeez. Yeah. And the person over the bar was Ace Bernie. And he also had a room that was on the first floor that was only used for gambling. In 1977, the hotel was raided and he lost his liquor license. And so the hotel was forced to close for good. But that's when Mike and Betty Adams were like, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. So they bought the hotel, restored the property to the original Victorian style, and it was actually like placed on the National Register for Historic Places in October of 1978. And I believe they reopened the doors to the public finally June 5th, 1981. And things have always felt a little strange at the Alaskan Hotel, but nothing off-putting really. It just always felt like home to the new owners, to be honest. They admit that, you know, there's been a lot of death in the building, but like, yeah, that might have some lingering spirits, but nothing bad. And we know about Alice, but there are some other deaths that aren't as brutal, but just some are kind of strange. One particular unexplained death happened September 9th, 1998, where Charles Kevin Wynn, who went by Charlie, he was found floating face down in a hot tub at a room in the hotel. And he was declared dead at the emergency room. And the thing is, no signs of foul play. And it's still like unknown what caused his death. Then in 2017, there is a Navy vet who was found dead in his hotel room. His name was Clarence Stanley Milton III, and he was staying with some friends, and they noticed he wasn't snoring. So they checked on him and found him cold to the touch. And there again were no sounds of foul play, but there was some suspicion that alcohol played a factor in his death. But I was like, oh my God, Clarence, you and me, that is how they would find out that I'm dead because they'd be like, oh, wait, hold on. Donna's not snoring. Like true story. Talk about a cruise. One time I had lost some weight and me and Tiffany were rooming together on a cruise and I wasn't snoring. And she said that she was like over me being like, God, I hope she doesn't wake up because she was like leaned all the way over. Not as in she hoped she didn't wake up because you're dead. Yeah. It's because she was leaning over you. Yeah. Like be it. I mean, I probably would have, like, smacked her in the face being scared because she was leaned over, like, trying to listen to me breathe. Like, oh, my gosh. And it was just because I had lost weight. 
Like she just leaned over me, um, hoping I wouldn't wake up. <laughs> uh, well, she made you wake up, just not while she's standing there. Yeah, you know. I mean, she is the angel of death, so there's that. Truth. Uh, but there was one incident at this hotel that didn't result in a death, but it definitely left a lasting impression on the room and the hotel. This happened May 2017. There was a sailor. He checked in and requested to stay in, like, the most haunted room you have. And so they put him in 315. He was part of the crew of the USS Bunker Hill, which was a guided missile cruiser, and it was scheduled to leave the port the next day. Well, later that night, it was close to midnight, the cops were called. And Chris Gifford was one of the responding officers, and he said that that evening was rowdy as fuck, because a lot of the people were downtown and a lot of them hadn't been off the boat for a while. So they were living it up. There was a band playing in the bar and it was just, I mean, you look at like all these like house parties on movies and stuff and it's just like, oh my God, how do people breathe? It was like that when they walked in and some people were like motioning them up the stairs. So they were like, okay, this is where we need to go. And that's when they got to the hall and they could hear screaming coming from inside room 315. And the door was locked. So the police knocked on the door asking if the man was okay. But they continued to hear screaming and they said it sounded like two different people yelling. Which I don't understand why they didn't knock the door down though. Because I feel like I see it in movies and everything when it has like, do you hear a scream? That's plausible. Yes. Like calls or whatever it is. Uh, So I don't know what's right or what's wrong, but they didn't. And anyway, while they're knocking and like trying to get this guy to like talk to them and stuff, there's this guy that comes up and he's like, um, excuse me, sir. Uh, by the way, I think the guy you're talking to, uh, just jumped out the window. What? So they then busted down the door and that's when they saw like a horrific scene. Officer Gifford said, quote, the walls were covered in blood. It looked like something very bad had happened in there. And I didn't know what it was, but it didn't look normal. And so some people said like he had wrote in blood help and like just had it smeared everywhere. But the guy jumped out of the window and he was on the third story and he didn't like open the window and jump. No, no, no. He like busted through the glass to jump out of it. And he didn't just bust through his window because the buildings are super close together downtown. So his body smashed through several other windows. Like while it was, I hate to say this, but think of Plinko. Mm -hmm. And that's how it happened because they're on pilings. In Juneau, there's lots of little, I want to just say pilings, but like wood. Like there's it's like a labyrinth of fucking wood down, like just how it is. So his body was just like ping, ding, dong, 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 through all the shit. There was a hotel guest named Jill Whites. She was 22 and she was with a group of the AmeriCorps volunteers and they were there that weekend. They had thought all the commotion was like the band and people downstairs, but it was actually the sailor. But can you believe he was able to walk out on the street? Because Officer Gifford was like, I don't know how we're going to get down there through all the pilings to get to him, to like get him out of here. But he was able to get up and walk out onto the street where they had to medevac him out of Juno 
and he ended up surviving. He had injuries from head to toe, but survived. Betty Adams said that the next morning, there were a lot of naval officers that came to like investigate the room and everything. And they were like, look, we don't want any of this public, like keep everything private, blah, 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 blah. But she also received a phone call from his mom in Arizona. And she was like, you nearly killed my son by letting him rent that room. So I don't know like what, like what he told his mom, what, you know, he, the guy never came forward, but there is audio that you can hear from them talking to the guy, like, cause they had like their little body cam on mm-hmm. when they did the call. And so, I mean, you could hear it. Like, it is documented that this happened. But it could have been just a weird occurrence. Could have been paranormal. Something in the room could have been like Freddy Krueger and him up against the wall. I don't know. Or it could have been drugs. I, like, I don't know. Because I'm just trying to think, like, you know, when you're like adrenaline, you see people like, oh, my God, they had all this happen to them. And they still, like, got up and did whatever. And they're, like, on yeah. drugs. And so they don't feel it. And all. so I don't know. But let's move on to some of the hauntings of the hotel. So Alice is the most common spirit seen. She's usually in a white gown, and staff and guests have both seen her. She is most often seen... I said often. Because mm, you know it's what? right. What? I think because I said most often, and so, like, the T was so hard on the most. Anyway, mm-hmm. let me go back. She is most often seen Gross. close to her room, 219, but she has been seen in 218 and 318. And I, I don't know, like, the 318 part. I don't know about that. But there's various staff members that they're like, look, I'm just uncomfortable when I'm working in this area. It's super cold. And they even say, like, if they have been missing something from another part of the area, like, oh, my God, all the towels are gone from here. They'll find it in her room or, you know, vice versa. Several people have seen Alice's ghost sitting on one of the beds in the room or have woken up and she's standing beside the bed and sometimes even touching them. Like, just like a light touch, just like, poke. (laughs) I'm not touching you. (laughs) Right. Some guests have seen her as they walk up the stairs and even in the mirror at the top of the stairs, like they've seen a reflection and they're like, that's not what, oh shit, no one's there. And that's, they're like, oh, fuck. I think I just saw Alice. Guests who have stayed in rooms 218, 219, and 318 have requested to move in the middle of the night. Or they're like, hey, can I get a refund? I'm leaving. And I mean, that might be because even if they didn't see her, they felt her energy. Because there's a deep sense of dread or melancholy that's overwhelming in these rooms at times. Where people can even experience dizziness in the room. There's, of course, normal haunting things like orbs being seen all over the place, especially at the hotel bar and like floating along the countertop and also like the stage where the bands play. But I feel like that's where a lot of light is on those areas. But also beer mugs have been reported to move on their own, like as if they're pushed, not just like, oh, a little bit. 
But that could just be condensation because you know how Mm -hmm. that shit happens. People have seen things out of the corner of their eyes. Dogs have barked at unseen entities or something that we couldn't see at least. One girl said that she went into one of the bathrooms and she came out and she was like, oh my God, Betty, to the owner, like, oh my God, I love that you continued this whole Victorian style, but like everything was so authentic in that bathroom. But Betty was like, what do you mean? So she and the girl walked back into the bathroom and it was the normal, like modern style. Like, yeah, it had Victorian, like frou-frou-ness, but like it's still modern. It's not like what they had back in the mining days. Yeah. And so it was just like super weird that that lady was like transported back for that little bit. Now for room 315, where that sailor was, Betty, she just says, like, this room's creepy. She doesn't like to be alone in there, you know. she won't, If she's going to be there, she's going to be by the door. Um, she said that she just gets uneasy emotions in there. Objects have been thrown in that room, and there's cold spots. Lots of shadow figures have been seen in there. And lots of people feel overcome with anger in this room, too. And next to that room in 313... It's said to house a spirit of a fisherman, and so it has a really strong fish smell sometimes, and that one is the one I'm like, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, 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 no. Yeah, Donna's really weird about seafood. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't like if you go to a restaurant, like, you get shrimp and she can smell it. She's bizarre. I can't eat chicken if I can smell your shrimp. It's a thing. Well, this location, the Alaskan Hotel, it was featured on Portals to Hell, Season 1, Episode 1. And this was actually the first time it was ever on TV for a paranormal investigation. Damn. Right? Well, the minute Jack and Katrina, like, entered the building, the electromagnetic thing, the mail meter, it started going off. And so they're like, what the fuck? What is going on? But both Katrina and Jack said they felt the creeps in room 315. And then on, like, they're just touring in at this time. And then they meet Joshua. And he's the bar manager and the owner's kid. And he is a character. He told them all about Charlie and the hot tub. He was the man who was found face down, not factory. And he was like, yeah, Charlie's still around. And he said that... Charlie's spirit seems to be angry at them and he's okay with males but if there's pretty girls around Charlie pays special attention to them like groping them and stuff and then Joshua started speaking in Latin Mm -hmm. and like talking about demons and like he could have been Dybbuk Douche's right hand man honestly at this point and you can tell like Katrina and Jack didn't know what to make of it at first you know like uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he said that he had seen a demonic entity that was like a black silhouette in the darkest corner in the basement in the back. It just stood and it watched him. But then later in the episode, he did cop to the fact that he had done some conjuring and stuff. And it was like, oh, yeah, no big deal. You know, and I'm like, dude, you are the problem. And when I wrote that, it reminded me <laughs> of stepmom when the husband i think his name is ed something Mm -hmm. but he's like my kids don't hate you or whatever and 
they the phone rings. Julia Roberts answers the phone and is like, what is your problem, asshole? And the daughter says, you are my problem. Yes. And then she's like, you're right, honey. Your kids don't hate me. Call your daughter or whatever. And uh, I don't know. She's like, you are my problem. Love that movie. If you have not watched Stepmom, one, get a whole box of Kleenex. But two, go watch it. No, I remember this episode because we watched this on the watch party. And I remember being like, that guy's weird like he something's up with him and it was like oh by the by i did all the conjuring and it's like uh way to bury the fucking lead douchebag exactly and then even later because he tells him that but then even later as they're sitting down for like their final thing he's like well yeah there was some dark arts because i dated this girl and her mom was into the dark arts and she like got some of my hair or an article of clothing somehow from me and blah, 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 like goes on about this. And I'm like, what? Yeah, there was a lot to unpack in that episode. Yeah, but it is easy to count him off as just being a goon. But when he's talking about Charlie being there and he's like, he's actually right behind you, Jack, the mail meter goes off and Jack was like, whew, I feel a little bit of a chill. But later, Jack was like, no, no, no. Like, seriously, to Katrina, he was like, no, no, no. Before he said, Charlie's right behind you, I got full body chills. And then he was like, oh, yeah, Charlie's standing right behind you. And he was like, I'm not going to freak out. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Like, that makes sense. He wasn't just like, yeah, he, you know, you could say like, oh, he's just blowing smoke up our butts. Like, we can't see Charlie. But like, the mail meter went off. And Jack had something before he even said it. And Jack didn't say like, oh, I just got chills. And he didn't say, yeah, because Charlie's right behind you. Like, he didn't know that. Right. So Katrina slept in Alice's room and Jack slept in the sailor's room. And both of them did not sleep well. They both felt like they were being watched and just that they didn't belong in those rooms. Katrina also had really messed up dreams like about murder and she was like look I normally do not dream like that so the next night Katrina was in the room in Alice's room and she was using like the ghost box and she spoke to Alice they heard the box say Alice three times and then it was she was like why are you here and they heard the word rape and then it just kept repeating that a couple of times and they're like Wait, did you hear it again? Like, what? That's just not a word that you would assume that it would say. And so Katrina said, what if Alice wasn't a sex worker and she was actually being raped at that point? And people just assumed that she was a sex worker because she was like another man was there, whatever, you know? Or even if she was a sex worker, that doesn't mean that she couldn't be raped. Very true. And it also said something like, the fool shot me. And so, again, with her husband, he, it one thing said it he did shoot her. Well, Katrina was kind of getting, like, a little affected about this. And she said that she woke up, and she hadn't told anyone about this. But she woke up because she felt hands groping her and, like, running up her legs. And she felt violated. But, again, she hadn't told anyone about it. But with rape coming up, she was like, maybe it is something with that room, like with that. And so when they brought that up later in the episode to Betty and to Joshua, Betty said that she has had people say that they felt like they were being like pushed down 
and like held down, but not like violated, but definitely like held down where they couldn't get up. Now, I believe it was the producer. She said that she had a dream about Alice and Alice had told her that she was misunderstood. And so then when this all happened, like her and Katrina were both like, all of this is kind of making sense to us, you know, that Mm -hmm. maybe she really was misunderstood or like, or at least, like you said, even if she was a sex worker around her death, it's misunderstood what happened. Well, when Jack was in his room, 315, he was asking if anyone was with him, like to make themselves known. And the room temperature changed and like he had gadgets and all the things. And so the alert came on and then they heard like the floorboard squeak, like someone was shifting their weight around. And so Jack tried to explore a little bit to see like, okay, is someone walking? What's going on? And he was asking questions And then it sounded like a growl answered him. He said that the third floor was kind of like a paranormal highway. It felt like sounds and things were going like kind of ping, 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 ping in different things. So like if he would say, like, make yourself known, it could be like made over here and then over there. And, you know, it was just like traveling a lot. And it was very overwhelming. Katrina and a producer went down to the basement to talk to Charlie because, you know, he don't like girls or he likes girls a little too much. And it did sound like there was someone walking and the energy shifted to kind of a darker energy. Like they just kind of felt very uneasy. And the producer said like every time she kind of moved her flashlight, she just felt like something was all around her and she was kind of freaking out. Like you could tell like she wasn't comfortable in this situation. They also asked this entity and they believe it was Charlie because every time they would ask like Charlie to come forward, it would highlight the like to say yes, like, okay, this is Charlie kind of thing. So they ask if Joshua invited something evil, either by purpose or by mistake. And the device they were using for communication lit up to answer, like to indicate yes which, hello, the dude was spouting Latin and talking about demons, he def invited something there. How Katrina was feeling in that room, she said she thinks that the spirit or the demon is attached to Joshua, not really the location. And then after they left, in the Juno Empire newspaper, Betty did an interview about being on Portals to Hell, and she said that there was a shelf that fell off the wall that was nailed in, And that was when the crew first got there. And then a mirror fell off the wall when someone had like barely touched it. And she was like, stuff like this normally doesn't happen or I wouldn't have a hotel. Like I can't have like shoddy shit Mm -hmm. doing this because I could get sued. And also shit's expensive and I can't have something that breaks all the time. So it was just like the activity was in overdrive at that point. And they do believe something is there in the Alaskan hotel. But what do you think, Carrie? I think it's that fucking uh, bartender dude letting all that (laughs) shit in. I know what it is. (laughs) Yeah. I think even if it is some of like the miners and stuff like that, him, him doing what he was doing, not the thing to do. Yeah. Oh, it was, 100% his fault. See, that's why I don't fucks with shit like that, because I'm not trying to, like, unlock, well, a portal to hell. (laughs) 
Yeah. So if y'all live in Alaska or y'all have been there and you stayed at the Alaskan Hotel, let us know. Let us know what you think about the Mr. Big sting operation. Yeah, I was going to say scandal, but it's not scandal. It's an operation. Yeah. Well, it can lead to scandalous confessions. Yes. I mean, it's outlawed in many, many countries for many, many reasons. But if it wasn't for this operation, they would never, or I hate to say never, but pretty unlikely that they would have found her body. Because if it wasn't for his confession to, air quotes, Brock, they would have never known to have looked there. Right. Well, we definitely want to know what y'all think. Thank y'all so much for listening and supporting us. Don't forget to like, review, subscribe, and all the things. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.